All right, everybody, let's do this. We are um, reading from chapter, we're starting chapter six, the book of creation. I, as I was just saying in my last uh, video, my Torah portion, I don't know if I'm going to finish this tonight. Uh, that's okay if I don't. Dadam and Lewitt, I will remind you that uh, Dadam is a, a composite image of Adam of the Bible and also, I believe, of Cain, interestingly enough. Now, the way I, I finished my video last week, and I want to really stress this, is that you like, okay, so right now on the side, I'm doing all this research on Greek artwork and how the Greek artwork depicts these different gods like Zeus and, you know, and so on and so forth, uh, Hera and so on and so forth. But the idea is, is that these stories are actually biblical and they actually, they trace us back to Noah and his children. And even beforehand, the sons of Seth and the sons of Cain and how these stories went out all over the world after the flood makes sense. But nobody goes and reads the, the, the Greek mythology and go, oh my God, the Bible is untrue. None of this is true. It's like nobody does that, right? One of my concerns with the Colburn is that people are going to come in here and they're going to read this and it's fascinating stories and they're different than the Bible. And people are like, oh no, the Bible's not true, right? It's like, all right, let's just think this through, right? And I've stated this before, that if the Noah's flood is, if that happened, if the Tower of Babel happened, if the Watcher's incursion happened, if Cain and Abel happened, if these world-shaking monumentous event happened, it would only make sense that we will see them all throughout the world and all the different religions. And in fact, we do, we see them, but they don't always all agree. Um, and this is where, when we, when we come to the Bible and it's the, the Elohim of the Bible, all these different religions have different gods, but the Elohim of the Bible is Yahuwah. And he says, if you want to enter in a covenant with me, you know, here are the rules, so on and so forth. Here's the stories. He gives his testimony. He gives his testimony about creation. He gives his testimony about history. He was there. And I choose to believe him. And in fact, the Bible, because of all these other stories, it makes the Bible so much more trustworthy and true. So when we read things in here that maybe have a little bit different perspective, it's okay. It validates the Bible. And there's some things in here that actually does fill in some missing pieces. They're really fascinating stuff. Let me give you guys a quick example. Uh, my third great-grandfather, all right? So we're going to trace back through my matriarch side. My mother's 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 father, okay? So my, my, my grandmother's name was Adele. Um, her mother's name was Madeline. And her mother's name was Sarah. And then her father's name was Henry Gainbin. Now, Henry Gainbin is my third great-grandfather. He fought in the Civil War, I know, right, the Civil War. Um, some of you who are coming into this uh, cold are like, what, what's your problem with the Civil War? Okay, well, that's a whole different discussion. But um, he, he fought in the for the Union in the Calvary in Missouri. And his uh, stories of him have passed down through all the daughters, all the way to my mom, down to me. And it very cherished. And Henry Gainbin is like this patriarch of my mother's family. Great stories about him, uh, stories of what happened to him in the Civil War. Well, apparently, the story that came down to us 
through Sarah, through Madeline, uh, through uh, Adele, and then to my mom, and then to me was that he had some sort of injury. It was like Confederate cannonball or artillery that took out his leg. And the, he went into the surgeon and the surgeon was going to cut it off, just like in the beginning of Dances with Wolves. And he pleaded with them and he saved his leg, though he was a cripple for the rest of his life. He actually lived a successful life uh, as a map maker out west, which makes him all the more fascinating in my mind now. Um, anyways, I went and tracked down my genealogy. I started looking into it. And lo and behold, um, I started discovering a lot of distant cousins, like cousins several times removed. And I couldn't believe it, but there are all these other families that spread out from him who all cherish him as a patriarch. Like he is a celebrity. He's like the Abraham of our, our of the family all over amongst all these cousins all over America who I never met before. Well, I started talking to them and I started talking about the Civil War story with his leg. And they're like, no, that's not correct at all. That's not what we heard. I'm like, wait, what? And so I went and looked up his medical records. And it turns out that it wasn't Confederate artillery. He was kicked. He was a he was a um, a blacksmith in the cavalry. He was kicked in the butt by a donkey, and um, he was crippled for life. Now, apparently, I don't know if, if he went and told a different story to his children or at what point in the game of phone tag it changed. But maybe he had a hard time saying, "Yeah." I went to the war and a donkey kicked me in the butt. You know, maybe it's much more glamorous to say, you know, artillery, cannon fire, whatever. My point is, is that I have the idea, right, that Henry Gainbin is my third great grandfather. I have the story surrounding his life wrong. My family had it wrong. Somebody had it right. We had it wrong. So just think about that as we go through this. So here is a, a, that was the longest introduction ever. Um, but let's, uh, let's start looking at this and the Dom and Lewin. Mava, now remember that's uh, that Eva, right? That's the, that's the Eve character. Uh, that, that's uh, Dom's second wife in here. Mava fled for her life. They're, they're, they've been expelled from Gardenland. And many kinfolk, kinfolk went with her. Uh, on a side note, I'm giving some presentations this week. I already recorded them today. I'll be making videos this week about the city of Alahayam, uh, the city of God, also the city of Enoch, that was in the land of Eden. And there was actually two city of Enoch's. There was the city that Cain built and then the, the city of the righteous, right? A lot of dualism going on. And Adam, according to Second Baruch, uh, was able to see the city and apparently walk into the city. It was connected with the garden. And yet the garden went up and the city went up. The city actually went up with Enoch. Uh, and, and so you have to go like, wait, what? There was a city? There was a city for, for who? For one person? No, for many people. There were many children of Allah Hayam living in this city. Um, and I mean, who was Adam uh, a spokesperson for, but for these children? Anyways, uh, so Mava fled for her life and many kinfolk with her. These would be the other children of Allah Hayam, according to this. But Dadam was unable to follow, being laid low with the sickness. This loosened his tongue, so it became uncontrollable, making him babble like a child. And the sickness covered his body with red sores, from which came an issue. So this is, a, I guess, a Hebrew way of saying this would be he's unclean. Lewid also departed for a place far out in the wilderness. And Lewid would be the, um, the Lilith character in this. Those with the Dom, so more children of Allah Hayam, 
who looked back toward the place of the garden, saw bright tongues of light licking the sky above it, the whole being interwoven with flickering flames and many hues. Those who sought to return were repulsed with a tingling ache over their bodies, which increased into severe pain as they approached. So they were driven away. Now, if you remember last week uh, or last time we talked about how these angels came down to guard it. Well, uh, or it, it says in this, these spirit creatures, we know those as be angels, they're spirits. Uh, and I find this fascinating because we always know about like the, the sword they would have, but like, what if these, these sicknesses are coming upon, like, these are actually the angels inflicting these sicknesses on them. That's one of the ways they keep them out. So I find this passage really fascinating. When Dadam recovered so he could stand, only a few remained with him, and they all moved further into the wilderness to a place where there was water and pasture. Then Dadam left Perthu uh, through uh, uh, Letha. So this I put that note there. So just so you know that Herthu is the son uh, through uh, through Letha. Yeah. So maybe okay. I so maybe it's not whatever. So I, I'm a little rusty. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm a little fresh at some of these names. So we'll get through this. His son and the boy's mother. And uh, with Heberus, the learned and set out to find Luid. Okay. So Luid is the, um, the, the Yosling. All right. After, so uh, the court can scratch that, that last comment about that. After many days, Dom and those with him came upon Luid and his Yoslings, who were full of sickness, and they slew many of them. So Dom is going, he's taking out the Yoslings. These would be the, the wild, the wild men, or what I believe are like Sasquatch creatures. But Luid was not slain, though mortally wounded, and he lay against a great rock. When Dom came near, Luid raised an arm heavily and said, Now keep in mind, so Luid here is the Hasatan, the serpent character, and the in the uh, Genesis story, Lewid raised an arm heavenly and said, Hail to the victor and benefactor who has come to terminate our wretchedness. While the Dom stood sternly contemplating him, Lewid said, To kill me now is your prerogative, for even we lesser beings who are far removed from Godmen have the law of husbandly pride. And so you could see that his disdain for the Dom character here, that he's basically saying here that you're, you're, you're a Godman. Right, you were created with this, you know, as like glowing beings, you know, and he he wasn't even human. And so you can see why so much why he despised. But what I what I did has been done before and will be done again. Hmm, that's interesting. But I erred by crossing an unknown barrier which could not be discerned. For we within ourselves are no more contagious to each other than are your people. If I then must die. Let it be for my part in spawning the cankerworms of disease which have stricken both our peoples. Back in the dreaming time, when the great Alahayam strove among themselves for dominion of the sky spaces. So he's talking about um, there was you know a time long, long ago, and the gods are fighting over control. This is his story coming from the mouth of Pasatan, right? And the wide expanse of earth was rent apart by unearthly wildfire. Bimotha, why is that word so familiar? Bimotha, was cut apart by the bright arrows of Shemas. Then this land was given to my people as their dominion, while yours was in another unearthly place far distance. All right. 
So the Motha, I think, is behemoth. I think it's the same thing. And it's really interesting here that um, uh, the presentations I'm going to be given this week, I don't want to spend too much time talking on this tonight or else I'll never get through this. But um, I'm convinced that the, the land of Eden, spoken about in Genesis 1 through 6, uh, I'm mostly convinced is Lemuria move at the lost continent, which you can see on the moon map. I'll be giving my presentations. And um, and so the, but it's interesting here that he talks about um, uh, that this land, the land that was theirs uh, was another unearthly place far distant, right? Unearthly, like a very spiritual place. He's talking about Mount Maru, the Garden of Eden, the city of Allah Hayyam. These they were nearby, but they were distant for him, and he crossed that threshold, and he wasn't supposed to. So here we see here, uh, and uh, quoting from Enoch, and when the day and the power and the punishment and the judgment come, which Yahuwah of spirits of or of Ruachoth hath prepared for those who worship not the righteous Torah, this would be the heavenly law, uh, as put down in in the law of Moshe, and for those who deny the righteous judgment. And for those who take his name in vain, that day is prepared for the elect a covenant, but for sinners and inquisition. And on that day where two monsters parted, the female monster named Leviathan, to dwell in the abysses of the ocean over the fountains of the waters. But the male is named Behemoth, who occupied, who occupied with the breast a waste wilderness named Duodin on the east of the garden where the elect and the righteous dwell. Where my grandfather was taken up, the seventh from Adam, the first man whom Yahuwah of spirits created. And I besought the other angel that he should uh, show me the might of those monsters, how they were parted on one day and cast, the one into the abysses of the sea and the other into the dry land of the wilderness. And he said to me, thou son of man, herein thou dost seek to know what is hidden. All right, so uh, I could go into a lot of this here, but it's interesting that uh, the I've talked about this before and I'll be talking about it again how the blessed land, the, the blessed realm or the hidden wilderness where the, the the elect and the righteous, the spirits go to dwell after they die is actually here on this earth in the greater realm. Okay, it's not hidden in some other spiritual dimension. And this is one of the, you know, the reasons for the globe earth deception. Um, but it, so who is, you know, we see the behemoth is a part of this land, uh, but the viathan, right? So the behemoth is the male, the viathan is the female. And as I'm reading this, I'm getting the impression that the Leviathan is the the was the god of the land of Eden, all right. And so some of you are like, "What?" Uh, very different from the Yahuwah, all right. Uh, and I'll be giving presentations on those this week if you follow my uh, land of Eden um, uh, presentations. Uh, but I'll, I'll I'll show you more tonight where, where I'm getting at as a little preview. Our domain, our no, this is the uh, the Yosling, this uh, the Satan character talking. Our domain was a pleasant place, and though you teach that because of this we remained as we are, yet we were content. We know of no great design, nor of any barley attainable objectives to which men must aspire. Such striving, as you know, is to us no more than purposeless vexation. If you recall last time, I talked about how the Anunnaki came down, and I believe they created these Yoslin characters. They call them Lulu uh, in the other documents, but they were, they were created um, by the Anunnaki. Um, so this is interesting here. Um, he, so he says here, we know of no great design, nor of any barely attainable objectives to which men may, may aspire. So he's saying that, remember in the beginning of this book, Book of Creation, it says that the one thing that separated men from the animals is that everybody who 
ask, you know, that it was talking about microevolution, not macroevolution, but we saw all the animals changing according to their desires. You know, they, they're in the cold. They want to be protected against the cold. They get a nice fur coat, right? Men don't get that. We don't go to Siberia and all of a sudden, like, we're like, you know, looking like a, you know, I don't know, just like a bear, right? Men look like men. There's there's slight variations, um, micro uh, variations, but the thing with men is that what we, uh, on a micro scale, evolve. What we change is, you know, we we are given a spiritual reality, right? And that that is the objective he's talking about. That's what separates these uh, these creatures, these Lulu, these these beast characters, uh, these yoslings from humanity. They, you know, they don't have the same objectives that men have. So this is interesting. So pay attention to this in uh, the Aramaic Targum. And this is Cain talking to Abel. And Cain said to Abel, his brother, come and let us two go forth into the field. And it was that when they two had gone forth into the field, Cain answered and said to Abel, I perceive that the world is created in goodness. But it, it is not governed or conducted according to the fruit of good works. For there is respect of persons and judgment. Therefore, it is that thy offering was accepted and mine not accepted with goodwill. Abel answered and said to Cain, in goodness was the world created, and according to the fruit of good works it is governed. And there is no respect of persons in judgment. But because the fruit of my works were better than thine, my oblation before thine have been accepted with goodwill. And Cain answered and said to Abel, there is neither judgment nor judge, nor another world, nor will, a good, nor will good reward be given to the righteous, nor vengeance be taken of the wicked. And Abel answered and said to Cain, there is a judgment and there is a judge and there is another world and a good reward given to the righteous and vengeance taken of the wicked. And because of these words, they had contention upon the face of the field and Cain arose against Abel's brother and he, and he killed him. So the reason I put this here is you see the same words coming out of him that's coming clearly out of Hasatan, but that you see in this Yasin character as well. Um, very interesting. So you, you get to have the same like doctrine, same theology here. All right, getting back to uh, Book of Creation, we see that Yosling is still talking. I have my Allah Hayam, and you have yours. And as they strove once against the other before times, so will it always be. But now there is a new battleground with new battle chiefs. All right. So what he's saying here, what this Yosling is saying is that he's saying to uh, this Adam character, he's like, you know, you we know him as Allah Hayam, the Father of Spirits. He said, you have your God, right? I have a completely different God that I follow. And um, they have battled in the past over this earth, and they will continue to battle. And that's the way it's going to be. And, but now he says there is new battleground with new battle chiefs. Who are the new battle chiefs? He is. They both are. The Dadam character and the Siyasli. They're the new battle chiefs that are representatives of these two Allah Hayam. They're going to continue battling. So and I've been thinking about this a long time. I'm not saying this is proof, um, but for me, this is further evidence that the, the Hasatan character that we talk about in the Bible, he is the, yeah, he is the, the grand chief, I guess, the prince of darkness, right, in our realm, but he's not the top dog. Uh, I think that there is a darker entity uh, that we never really hear about beyond the, beyond the uh, you know, beyond the stage. Uh, a good, a good fictional uh, example of this would be for everyone here. Everyone here has watched the Lord of the Rings. And you guys know that the big baddie of the Lord of the Rings is a guy named Sauron, right? That big eye on the tower, you know, looks like the eye of Horus. 
And uh, but even though everyone tries to defeat Sauron, they do. He's actually not the big baddie. That the big baddie is a guy named Melkor. Sauron is a servant of a bigger, darker lord, right? And so that's what he's saying here. Even though he and this the Dom character are going to battle for 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 the eons going forward, they're both representatives of a more ancient god. So let's see what this says here in the Palo Hebrew. In the house, the summit. So I'm reading from Genesis, right? Genesis chapter one, but this is the paleo. This isn't your typical Bible study here. This is not the Masoretic. In the house, the summit, the chief and first, former state, as a sign, son and heir, creator, Allah Hayam. Power that leads by the hand from chaos, chosen power, separate power, cleansed, filled with choice things. Behold the sign, the heavens, the place of the names, the space between the waters. And as he firmly fixed sign, behold, the head of the tail, the place of writing the fractured lands. So that's all Genesis 1-1 in the paleo there. And what you're seeing happening is you're seeing Alahayam, the, the father of all Ruakoth. He's actually revealing the, the error of this new kingdom, of this new world that's about to be recreated from an old world. It's his son, Yahuwah. And uh, not all the Elohim are happy with this because look what happens next. Uh, and behold, well, and behold, the place, the firmly fixed land, that first chief place of running existed shapeless, laid waste, swept clean, vain, and empty. So the world has been destroyed. It, it's shapeless, it's laid waste, it's swept clean, it's vain, and it's empty. And, and darkness, chosek, like the, that's the word chosek, like it's a, it's like a, a type of spiritual entity that's actually darkness rose up from the deep waters the underground prison this would be the abyss moved to the surface and the ruach alahayam so this is the ruach hakadesh as a wall of protection moved tremendously uh and really violently behold upon the surface of the water so this this dark entity entities coming out of the abyss to challenge the son of all these, the heir of Allah Hayam, the son, Yahuwah, who whose name will be revealed in the next chapter of Genesis. And so then the Ruach HaKadosh comes to violently oppose and hold them back and be like, you know, thou shalt not pass, right? You know, get back into the abyss. And that's from the first two. How epic is that? That's the first two verses of Genesis, Bereshit. We also see this from the Baal cycle. Little uh, Mesopotamian literature here. When you killed Litten, the fleeing serpent, annihilated the twisty serpent. This would be the Leviathan. The potentate uh, tentate was seven heads. The heavens grew hot; they withered. Um, I have it has come to my attention as I'm studying uh, Lu, uh, Lumeria, Mu literature, and so on and so forth that the idea is, is that the god of of this continent, this missing continent, was the seven-headed Leviathan. Um, and so I think that I, I actually think that this is the, um, the, it could be the dark entity in the abyss. And in fact, I actually believe too, based on books like third Baruch and others that, uh, that Sheol itself, uh, is actually in the, the belly of this Leviathan serpent. Um, you see him in third Baruch in, in the third heaven. And this is when Sheol itself is thrown into the lake of fire in revelation. This is actually that entity finally destroyed once and all for all and death itself is destroyed and this is what's so important when in the gospel of nicodemus and others when yeah uh yahusha hamashiach broke it the broke the iron bars of shul went down and emptied out shul and released everybody from it 
And uh, that goes, you know, into, you know, Job with the, the question, you know, who can, you know, break the teeth of Leviathan, right? That kind of stuff. All right, we also see this in the the Baal cycle. Have you forgotten uh, Baal? Forgive me for saying these. I don't know if I should even mention his name. That I can surely transfix you for all that you smote Leviathan, the slippery serpent, and made an end of the wriggling serpent, the tyrant with seven heads. The heavens will burn up and droop helpless, for I myself will crush you in pieces. I will eat you. That's that's lovely. All right. Um, and then um, I just wanted to point out here in the in Bezor and Nicodemus, in the Gospel of Nicodemus, and we see that uh, Satan, who is the prince and captain of death, Hasatan, he would be Samael, the angel of death. Uh, he said to the prince of Sheol, and I find that interesting. There's actually a, a, an entity in Sheol that appears to be higher than actually Hasatan. And that's not usually how people think of him, but I'm just saying that he has his superiors. All right. All right, getting back to the uh, speech with the Yosling. Such is fated and must be, but who will win the fair prize of earth for their king, right? So the war between, in in, in Hebrew terms, the war between Satan and, and the sons of Adam, right? They're both fighting this for the kingdom of their king. We shall not strive with clubs and lances, the hurling stone and flying dart, but with more subtle weaponry. This thing is not our choice. We are but playthings of fate. That you and I should head the fray is not because of our qualities, but because we were uh, we were where we were when we were. Now we are but two precarious points of life in a hostile wilderness. But what might we be in a hundred generations? So this is interesting. He's he's on his way out. He's breathing his last. He's going to die, and yet he's saying he's going to be around eternally, at least. In this age and that's a really interesting thought i'm just going to throw this out there i mean what if hasatan died uh because we know that the um according to this he would be a nephilim type of creature he is created by the anunnaki um and so he would not uh there would he would not enter sheol uh, he would be freed from leviathan from the from the abyss and in, in that context uh, now we know that Hasatan is locked up for a thousand years. That's a whole different story. But um, and then release. But the Nephilim, you know, when they die, the the the, the children of the Watchers, the giants, they didn't go to Sheol. They wandered the earth as demons because there was no they. Uh, or I say, Allah Hayam was not their father. He's the father of spirits, but he's not their father. And so there was no place prepared for them. So. It's this idea that he, even though he's about to die, he's still going to wander the earth. And he's still, like, he's the top dog. He's going to be calling the shots. So it's a really interesting way to look at Hasatan. And I'm not saying that this is true, what we're reading, um, but it it definitely gives some new interesting angles and helps fill in some pieces. Saddam said, these things I know too, for my eyes have always been open." I too have looked out into an endless plain without any horizon, but I shall lead those who have grown strong through seeking and striving, while those in your ranks will be weakened through indulgence in the flesh pots and pleasure places of earth. So Dadam is saying, look, I'm going to die too, but I'm going to continue this fight against you, even my spirit, even afterwards. I'm going to continue. And I love this here where he says, you're weakened through the flesh pots and pleasure places of earth. And that is exactly, you know, what Hasatan, you know, leads people to, to, and the sons of Cain did as well. We are the disinherited. 
Why is the Dom the disinherited? Because he is the uh, the bastard sons of Allah Hayyam that are hoping to reclaim their status as sons of uh, Elohim again, but not the disowned. So there you go. We are the disinherited, but not the disowned. This speaks of pre-existence. We have the seeds of victory within us. Um, and we saw this tonight. With, this is perfect with our Torah portions tonight when we were going through Yosef being sent to Egypt and how he actually paralleled Mashiach more than probably anyone else in the Bible. I mean, there are so many comparisons, and he went through these very hard tests and trials, which falls in line with the Colburn, exactly, in order that he become more in the image of Mashiach, more in the mind, the spirit, the spark within of Mashiach. That's the seeds of victory within. We all have that ability to uh, follow the heavenly law, the Torah, to walk in Mashiach's footsteps. He showed the way, and we have, we have that ability. But it's, of course, Hasatan who wants us to disobey the Torah. You and yours were never more than you are, sons of the easy path, right? The wide road of existence, followers of the downhill road, like the slippery slope that leads to hell. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between the seed of thy son and the seed of her sons. And it shall be when the, oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, wait, wait a second. This is not the Colbert. Okay, so I'm reading from the Aramaic Targum, Genesis Bereshith, chapter three, all right? So this is the uh, Yahuwah speaking of the division, the eternal division that is between the sons of Hasatan. And of course, I believe that Cain was a literal son of Satan through uh, Eve and, um, and his line. And of course, Adam, and then we see Yahushua HaMashiach fulfilling this when he crushes the head of the serpent. Uh, even though uh, Herod, who was an Edomite, um, who, you know, he, he was trying to, like, reverse engineer uh, that and actually crush the head of Messiah, but it didn't work out that way. But anyways, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between the seed of thy son and the seed of her sons, and it shall be when the sons of the woman keep the commandments of the Torah, of the law, they will be prepared to smite thee upon the head. Well, what's the opposite of keeping the commands? It's lawlessness. It's the spirit of Antichrist. It's taking the wide and easy path, the slippery slope, downhill, right? All the things that this yossling creature wants. But when they forsake the commandments of the Torah, thou wilt be ready to wound them in their heel. Makes sense. You can, it, Hasatan can only control us when we drop the commands, you know, start eating bacon. You want to, not keep the commands, not keep the God commands, start eating unclean. Nevertheless, for them, there shall be a medicine, but for thee, there will be no medicine. And they shall make a remedy for the heel in the days of the King Mashiach. So uh, Mashiach, Yahushua HaMashiach uh, is, uh, you know, he's also that remedy. And he drove out the man from thence where he had made to dwell the glory of his Shekinah at the first between the two uh, cherubim. We also we saw this in the Colburn as well, Book of Creation. Uh, before he had created the world, he created the Torah. He prepared the Garden of Eden for the righteous, that they might eat and delight themselves with the fruit of the tree. This was the higher calling that uh, the Yosling talked about, because they would have practiced in their lives the doctrine of the Torah in this world and have maintained the commandments. But he prepared Gehenna for the wicked, which is like the sharp, consuming sword of two edges, in the midst of it, he hath prepared flakes of fire and burning coals for the judgment of the wicked who rebelled in their life against the doctrine of the Torah. To serve the Torah is better than to eat of the fruits of the tree of life. The Torah, which the word of Yahuwah prepared 
that man in keeping it might continue and walk in the paths of the way of life in the world to come. So what they're saying there is that, you know, everybody wants to eat from the tree of life. I mean, that's the goal of every religion, even, you know, the occultist wet dream. And, and yet they're saying there that like for all those yearnings to eat from the tree of life, to serve the Torah and to walk out the Torah is better than that. And of course, the tree of life is also embodied by the uh, by the Ruach Kakadesh. Later, let's see, what is this from? Um, oh yeah, so this I wanted to address the idea that um, let me just read this line again, where he says we are disinherited. Oh, I don't need to read it. We're, we they are disinherited. Um, whatever, I'm going to get lost if I do this. I don't want to wander from the path too far. Anyways, uh, the Dadam character says that they are disinherited, but um, whatever. You know what I mean. Later, the Talmudim asked Yahusha why he had succeeded when they had failed. And this was, I think, in casting out demons. They were unable to do it. Of course, demons are the wandering, uh, disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, right? And he said, these things are done through the power of the Ruach HaKadosh, which is the hand of Yahuwah. Men have it according to their capacity to hold it. But before it can come in, evil must be driven out. I do not teach abstinence from evil for some purposeless end, but to bring to men the recognition of their heritage. All men were once sons of Elohim, but they became bastards of Elohim without heritage. I come to men so they may re-inherit and become true sons of Elohim. All right. Um, why did I put the Book of Wisdom in here? Well, let me find out. Um, the divine is hidden from men and veiled behind the firmament. And this separation, this feeling of being cut off, is a source and basis of religion. The divine and man, fire and spark, now uh, sundered apart, crave to be united. And this craving expresses itself as religion. And so that's uh, what Dadam talked about, how we still have the spark within us. And that spark leads to the fire, right? The fire on the other side of the firmament, uh, beyond, you know, uh, it's veiled behind. I love that too. It says it's veiled behind the firmament. That's perfect. Absolutely perfect. All right. Back into the book of creation. Then when these things had been spoken, Lewid died. So this is the Osling, Lewid. He's dead. I told you a total new way of looking at Hasatan. And I'm not saying he is dead, but he could be dead. I don't know. He could be just a wandering spirit. And Dadam, a uh, wandering unclean spirit. And which would also explain why maybe he's beyond the point of redemption. I don't really know. And Dadam and those with him burnt his body. Dadam and those with him wandered the wastelands for many days, then turned southward towards the mountain. Then it happened that one day Dadam was seated apart in solitude among rocks with chin on, with chin on chest, and a hunter of the Ubalites came upon him from behind. The hunter slung a smooth stone as the man turned, and it struck out his eye. Then the Ubalites slew him by smashing in his head with a stone. So yes, uh, the Adam character just died. He was just murdered. Uh, so this is where I told you that it, he has a bit of the composite of Cain. So let's read where this happens in the book of Jasher. Uh, and Lamech was old and advanced in years, and his eyes were dim that he could not see. And Tubal Cain, his son, was leading him. And it was on one day that Lamech went into the field, and Tubal Cain, his son, was with him. 
And while they were walking the field, Cain, the son of Adam, advanced towards them, for Lamech was very old and could not see much. And Tubal Cain, his son, was very young. And Tubal Cain told his father to draw his bow, and with the arrows he smote Cain, who was yet far off, and he slew him, for he appeared to them to be an animal. Which is really interesting because we're talking about these yoslings, right? And they're like these not fully human, they're like these animal creatures. That's really interesting with Cain. And who was who was Cain, but he was a son of the serpent. And the arrows entered Cain's body, although he was distant from them, he fell to the ground and died. And Yahuwaha requited Cain's evil according to his wickedness, which he had done to his brother Abel, according to the word of Yahuwaha, which he had spoken. And it came to pass when Cain had died that Lamech and Tubal went to see the animal which they had slain, and they saw, and behold, Cain, their grandfather, was fallen dead on the earth. And Lamech was very much grieved at having done this, and in clapping his hands together, he struck his son and caused his death. Now, how in the world does Lamech clap his hands and his son falls over and dies? All right. Well, this is what it says in the book of Lamech of Cain in Leviathan. And Lamech, in his happiness, clapped his hands. And the Leviathan, then, and the, the female Leviathan, but we know that already, then did kill Tubal Cain where he stood. All right. So, according to this, when uh, he claps his hands, it's Leviathan that comes. Now, people who have read the book of Lamech of Cain will criticize and make it out like Fred Flintstone with a big dinosaur. They fail to understand the esoteric understanding of of Leviathan, not as a big old dinosaur walking around the forest, but as a spiritual entity, a god. All right. This is this is the basically the god of death, is, is maybe the best way to phrase this, which makes sense that Samael is the the servant who brings people to the princess Sheol, uh, to the confines of Sheol. And uh so the idea behind this book is that Leviathan, and of course, Leviathan is a seven-headed uh, creature, the same one we see in Revelation. And um, the idea was is that in the book of Lemech of Cain, they were feeding babies to Leviathan. Uh, they were basically throwing them in the water. And it was so that they would, uh, they, they were worshiping Leviathan so that they would be preserved from the flood because they knew the flood was coming. And so before the flood they passed the children through the waters what happened after the flood they passed the babies through the flames because nimrod was the one who put it together and realized that the water judgment is over the fire judgment is coming and so then they started worshiping fire because they thought if they worshiped the fire that they could pass through uh, the flames of gehenna unharmed which is interesting because Allah Hayam is an all-consuming fire He's not an all-consuming water. He's an all-consuming fire. And the sons of Allah Hayam will build a pass through the fires unharmed. And so it's it's like they have the they get the, they get the concept. You know, they, they want to build a walk through the flames, but they don't want to live a righteous, holy lifestyle in service of, of Allah Hayam through his son Yahuwaha. They want to rebel against Yahuwaha. They want to kill Yahuwaha and still be able to manage the flames, right? It didn't work out so good for them before the flood. Uh when the land of Eden was completely destroyed. I believe that's Lumeria, Mu. I'll be talking about that a lot this coming week. Getting back into the book. The hunter who killed the Dadam character was the son of Ankadur, son of Inanari, king of the Ubalites. By 
uh, Urkula, daughter of the Chassites. And I, I, you know, this is all so fresh. I just don't know this genealogy. I haven't sat down to look at all who these people are. This is known because those who were with the Dom came out of the barren places and learned the way of builders, becoming great among the Ubalites and raising cities along the rivers. So this is where we're all of a sudden the Dom becomes king because this is what Cain was doing, right? He was the first Freemason. He was the first one going around, building cities. He was wandering around and, and, and you know, building, you know, the, uh, the, the lodge, you know, lodge for the brothers. Um, anyways, among them was Inkilgal, who built Caridor, which stands between the two great rivers, and Nitar and um, Balat Shiramam, who taught men the ways of writing, setting the letters upon a pillar in Herak. All right. Chapter seven, uh, Herthu, son of the first father. Now I'm going to warn you. Well, this is where the book like takes a sudden dramatic shift. And all of a sudden we're going into this like Arthurian uh, literature. One of the reasons I didn't give this presentation last week was because I'm looking at this going, oh my goodness, this has Arthur all over it. And so I need to pick this apart line by line and do a study on it. And then like a week went by and, and nothing happened. And I thought, well, nothing is going to happen. So I'm just going to read this to you guys. Um, I have less and less notes from this point forward. We'll just read through this. You could see where the Arthurian legend comes out of this. Now, people will criticize this and say, see, this is proof that uh, the Coburn is a more recent forgery. And they're actually basing this on Arthurian legends. But then others, which, and of course, I take this opinion, are like, no, actually, Arthurian legends come from this. This book, the Colburn, was coming through these circles of people who are picking up reading it. It's not amongst the public that we know of. Um, at least official history doesn't tell if it was. And, you know, they're pulling Arthur out of this or or uh, we see history repeating itself. And that's, you know, that's not surprising at all since even the patriarchs in the Bible, you know, nothing happened to the patriarchs that did not happen later to Israel or anyone that's grafted into Israel. So uh it's very likely that you could have a arthur character that you just see these repeated things with so let's get right into this let's see if i can survive the night i need another drink of water the book of beginnings so they're, they're telling you now all of a sudden they're sourcing something else entirely different they're stitching into this book but really this should almost be like a different book the book of beginnings tells us all things began with uh Varkelfa. therein called Awen Khalifa, from whom flows Gwinnon, the energizer which stabilizes all things. So they they maintain their proper form in Awen, which responds to the molding desires. This is well enough, but men concern themselves more with the beginnings of their race, and ours is rooted in Herthu, the sun-faced son of the first father. So they're saying this Herthu is uh, the son of Dadam. And so it's it, you're almost tempted to say like this is a, a Seth character, um, and because uh, Abel was killed off by Cain, Cain was the son of Hasatan through uh, through Eve, and so Herthu is kind of like Seth. But Herthu sounds a lot like Arthur too, actually. Um, I and um, and so I'm I'm kind of for this. I'm like I'm pulling away from Seth because Adam had many sons. All right. So keep in mind when when Moshe is writing. He's writing a genealogy that reflects from, from Adam through Seth all the way down. Of course, the line of Cain back to Naima, who then married Noah, had Ham. And so you see this family quilt. 
but they had many different children. And so I am of the opinion that um, they're now, they're basically following a different lineage. Um, so while Perthi was still young, he was expelled from the lush lands where he was born. And I don't know why he was expelled. This could be this could be a reference to garden land, which would make a lot of sense. So he was expelled. They were all expelled because of the sin of Dadam and Neva. And he journeyed across the harsh lands in the company keeping of wise Haberis. Now, we're going to see Herthew now and Haberis. And Haberis is kind of like, uh, he sounds a lot like Merlin. He, he comes across a lot like Merlin. You could say maybe this is Enoch, but I don't think it is. I think this is just, the world is a big place, a lot of people in it. They, they didn't all end up in the Bible. So I'm going with Arthur and Merlin, right? After many days, they came to Crocalsis, cradle end of our race. So where is cradle end of their race? Um, I'm of the opinion that it, it could be Egypt, but I'm almost, I'm almost thinking Britain. I, I can't prove that, but, you know, it, it's just cradle end of our race, right? This is coming from the, the British people. Land of mountains and rivers, which is beside artists, and they encamped there in a valley. With them were retainers and flocks. Herthew grew to manhood there, and always Haberus was at his side. Of course, who raised Arthur was Merlin, right? And so Haberus instructed him in all things he should know. He taught Herthew the nine essential disciplines of Almain and the secrets of the three sacred vessels. We've seen these three sacred vessels also in the Colburn. Uh, Herthew learned that there was a place of gloom where the air was foul, and Melodorus um, breezes carried pestilence and poisonous particles. This was the source of all uh, maladies and ailments and of the things which cause putrefaction and decay. This place had been closed off from earth, for it existed in another realm beyond the kin of morals, but it had been brought into attunement with earth when a forbidden act was accomplished. Thus the bodies of mortals became susceptible to influences from baleful place, from the baleful place. So what they're saying is, is that so there is a, you know, they talk about this, we've read through this in the book of wisdom and other places that uh, when a person dies, their their ruach, their spirit, uh, starts to become molded to who they truly were. Either we would say righteous or wicked, you know, on, on a like one to ten scale, either way. And that those who are more tuned to the wickedness side, they go to this. They just naturally are attracted, drawn to this very dark spiritual place, which I believe is on this earth. And the ancients all talk about the blessed lamb and land, and then there's uh, the place of darkness right next to it, and they're separated, and the spirits all go to these separate places. Um, and um, yeah, and so it's kind of interesting too, because when we, you know, comets, um, but things like that, uh, I believe perhaps bring disease. But I just think it's fascinating that there's this other realm that somehow opened up through a portal or something. They said some forbidden act. They didn't explain what it was. It opened up. And so now these diseases come out, uh, these ailments come out from it. Um, and, you know, are those like um, um, parasites, for example? Um, I, have a, I have a paper I wrote on how parasites could be the children of Lilith. And Lilith keeps every day making more children and more children. And then when you look into these apocalyptic literature, you see these very evil entities in this dark realm. Um, that could be, you know, Lilith's children. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I just, yeah, it just really resonates with me. The idea that there's this dark spiritual realm and these diseases come out of it. 
like parasites. To this and similar parts of the other world, the wicked would be drawn when they pass through the grim gates of death. I just explained that. But Heberus taught a different conception of wickedness, one where lack of effort, indolence, and indifference to duty and obligations, the taking of the easy path, were just as wrong as actual deeds of wickedness. Did you guys just catch that? I mean, that's straight up Torah, guys. Because I talk to Christians all the time. They're like, yeah, well, I don't, you know, I, I don't murder and commit adultery and these kind of things. It's like, yeah, yeah, that, that's wicked. But your lack of, what do it say here? Your indifference to duty, to obligations, you know, uh, lack of effort, right? These kind of things. This is taking the easy path, right? Now, Yahushua's, Yahushua HaMashiach, his Torah is, is uh, it's, it's, it's easy. His burden is light, right? His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Uh, it's, it's not enslavement. But it, it's just like people take the easy path. Right, and that's the, the wide road of destruction. That is also the path of wickedness. So there's, it's not, it's a lot of times it's in things you don't do that's wicked. It's not in, just in things you do, like adultery. It's in things you don't do that can also be wicked. He taught that men reach the true goal of life by transmuting, um, transmuting lust love into true love. And this is, of course, all in the concept of the marriage of Lulakoff. Most people, uh, according to Yahushua Mashiach, would um you know they um it's getting late i can't even think of i don't have a thesaurus in my head right now the book is closed um okay it's so very few people reach true love that um he, he would say fornication he said most couples having intercourse it's just fornication that's all it is they don't have it's it, it's that lust love they have not united their spirits together the ruach into one ruach and you know are experiencing true love a true union of spirits that true victory is gained only over the defeated bodies of their vanquished passions and baser selves. All right. For lack of time, I'm not going to read this long, magnificent section from the Book of Wisdom. We already did study on that. You can see Book of Wisdom 15. But it, it talks about, you know what? Forget that. I'm going to read it. Sorry, guys. I just need a drink of water. I can do this. I think we're just going to get through one chapter tonight, and that's okay. Or this chapter. Um, and then we'll be done. The spiritual realm lies between the realm of matter and the realm of the divine. All right. And so uh, if your mind is unable to grasp the idea of the divine and you cannot understand what is meant by spirituality, do not be dismayed. How can an ordinary unenlightened mind do so when it is shut? Ooh, they just said, if you don't get this, you're unenlightened. <laughs> you're an ordinary unenlightened mind. Uh, um, uh, slam. So... How can an ordinary unenlightened mind do so when it is shut in by a corrupt material world and enclosed on every side by illusion? I love that line. I mean, um, this world is an illusion, but, you know, they, I read to you a couple weeks ago about how, the, you know, the idea of quarks and vibrations and how everything is music and it's just vibrating. It all originates from Allah Hayam, right? He sings this song, this music, and it's this energy that goes out and it materializes everything. It's beautiful. But the idea is, is that everything underneath the firmament through the glass darkly, everything down here, it's muddy. It's, you know, in a very platonic sense. It's all pure above, but we don't get that. So for us, we're in the shadow land. Absolute purity cannot be seen amid the clouds of earthly impurity. And in this defiled place, the immaculate is inconceivable. Therefore, if you cannot understand this or perceive the reality of perfection, how much less are you able to comprehend the divine? 
stepped confident, confidently along the path guided by understanding companions, which we're seeing with Herthew and his uh, little Merlin companion there, who are more in, enlightened for they will not lead you astray and soon the light of understanding will be placed in your hand. The spiritual realm is divided into two parts. On one side is the place where the wicked have accomplished a companionship of their own kind. And it is a cold place of gloom and darkness. This is the realm of evil containing those who are repulsive even to their own kind. Their greatest punishment may lie in the fact that they retain the memory of beauty, goodness, and cleanliness, just as the happiness of those in the realm of good. On the other side is heightened by its contrast with the sorrows and afflictions they have known. That is so beautiful. I mean, it's it's like um, the, the, the wicked were seeking pleasure their whole life, right? They, they were they were seeing the material realm as a place that was here to serve them you know materialism they wanted to acquire they they worshiped the earth in that way they didn't see the earth as a place to chast perfectly created to chastise them to chisel them into the image of Allah Hayam. and so um those who have the most joy are the ones that experience sorrow and affliction we went through that earlier time with the Torah portions with Yosef in prison and all the hardships he went through. The Yahuwah purposely took him through that in order to elevate him to the second in command in Metroim. The realm of evil is separated from the realm of good by an etheric form of flame through which communication can be made. Were those on the sunlit side to inquire from the dwellers in gloom what brought them to their deplorable state, if the truth could be found in them, they would reply, we are those who were heedless of all spiritual and ennobling things. And of course, that's the, the whole point uh, of, of this realm of our controllers is to just uh, to just smolder that fire, that spark within us to kill the spiritual. We were those who thought only of their own betterments and not the advancement of mankind and the welfare of others. Remember, that's, that's Yahushua HaMashiach. Yahuwah has, that's what is on his mind. Remember, he said that there will be people who come in the kingdom and who are like, who are you? And he says, he, he says, all those times that you were, you know, visiting the, the sick and taking care of them, visiting people in prison, taking care of the widows and the orphans and clothing and feeding people and so on and so forth, you were doing it for me, right? So that's, the, you know, then there's all these other people who might think that God is on their side and they're just thinking about their own advancements in life and that the earth is here to serve them. And they're the ones that are ultimately the wicked people. They don't see themselves as wicked, but they're ultimately the wicked people. We were the selfish ones who considered only their own comfort and convenience. There's an old um, uh, Jewish uh, parable where it says that um, in they describe what it's like in, in hell. And uh, I, I would say Sheol, but we'll go with hell for this. And they say that in hell there's um, there's a fire and a, a cooking fire and there's like a like a, a pan like a ladle with a you know, long ladle and you can cook things in there like a like a soup and the problem is is that um you can only hold like there's like a, a hot pad at the very end of it you can only hold the end of it and the length of it is longer than your arm so there's no way to get it back into your to your uh mouth to to eat it. it's too hot to touch you'll scold yourself and so the people in hell are miserable because they can cook food, but they can't, they can't eat it. And if you go to heaven, it's the same thing. There's a fire, there's a cooking pot, you know, a very long ladle and with a like mitten at the end. They still can't put it into their mouth. 
But why are they happy? Because they're actually serving the person next to them. They're feeding the person next to them and feeding the person next to them. And that's the whole idea that the people who end up in this wicked place are the people who actually, they were inactive. Again, they might have been just good people in the sense of like they weren't committing adultery. They weren't murdering. They thought in those terms, but they didn't have the duty and honor to go and take care of other people. Their heart was on themselves, not on others. You know, they don't want to feed the other people. They just want to feed themselves. Now, look at what we have. We oppress the poor and lowly and exploited the helpless and weak, doing nothing to improve their lot. Now, look at ours. We sat on councils and in seats of authority, engaging in vain disputes about right and wrong, right? So they're in philosophical discussions. While the poor, the hungry, and the oppressed stood by and suffered in patience. We were above all those who could have done much but did little. We were those who, given great gifts, used them for selfish ends. What have we now? We inhabited fine houses. I'm fading, so I'm like wilting like a flower, guys. We inhabited fine houses and surrounded ourselves with all things to give ease and comfort. Now we are comfortless. We sought out places of pleasure and closed our eyes to the sorrow and suffering of the world. We laughed at those who sought to teach us spirituality. Wow. We think about that. Like for all of those for all of us pursuing the truth and we just, the people mock us and they think like, we're like, you know, the really like, cause we're not normal, right? We're not on the wide road and they judge us by that. And they judge some sort of spirituality by that. And, and they look and they're like, what's wrong with you? And so that's the idea. They, they, um, we, we laughed at those who sought to teach us spirituality and took a base and easy view of right and wrong. Wow. There is no laughter here. We doubted that there was any life to come. Remember, I read that earlier with uh, Cain, that he doubted there was any life to come. We see the same thing with the Yoslings. And could not understand the talk about it. With that, the grave had been the end. Talk of duty and service disturbed our ease and complacency. And we let others carry our burdens if only we could return. Only now, when we so miserably exist in the certainty of life after death, can we realize our errors and suffer for them. Here the air is filled with the sighing sound of the saddest words we know, too late. Those words did once span the gulf and were recorded by an ancient seer. On the day when the whole being is split apart by death and the mortal clay is consigned to its proper place, so the, the spirit is separated from the, the flesh, the spirit passes through the great gates into the spiritual realm. There it at first enters a borderland where the floodgates of memory are open and each and every deed recalled. And that, that fits in with uh, Hebrew literature as well. This is where the newly arrived spirit waits while slowly it assumes its chosen shape and realizes the direction of its destination. The spirit does not arrive in a state of waking, but it is like one asleep. It awakes kind of like our own life here on the earth. It, you know, I don't know how long this process takes, but it awakes to its new life like a man awakes to a new day. Then if during earthly life it has doomed itself, this realization will slowly dawn. And this is just like reading Second Ezra, guys. And the newly formed being will cringe away from those who came to welcome it. It will indeed wish that death had been the end. The wisdom of ancient times disclosed that the newly arrived spirit stood in completeness for judgment. But what is what it called the place of decision is the borderland. So you get that right there. So you enter the borderland and you die. The place of decision, you go either to the left or the right. And your 
that who you are naturally, like it just, you're just going to be prone to go to one or the other. If during life the spirit has beautified and ennobled itself, it will slowly realize its unfolding glory and rejoice. It will rise gladly to its welcome and advance fearlessly into the light of its compatible place. Some which do not have full affinity with either the light or the darkness depart for the shadow land, towards which they are impelled by its attraction for one in their state. Within the spiritual realm, there are places to suit the condition of every spirit entering it, and that is why the ancient book states, the mansions of the spirit are without number. And that comes from Book of Wisdom 15. It fits in perfectly with what they're talking about. These and many other things were taught by uh, Eberus to, uh, to Herthew. But many of his teachings displeased the people of Kraukasis, who were then as they were before Herthew's forefather was led away. So this reminds me right here. I didn't quote it, but it reminds me totally of the passage in Jasher where Enoch is taken up to heaven and then his son is made king of the world. Uh, because they wanted to continue the teachings of righteous Enoch. And as soon as he started teaching it and instructing them in righteous living, they were like, yeah, we don't want that. So it displeased them. They made, they had made him king. So Heberus concealed many things for them and taught by simple tales, things within their understanding. And this is, um, this is a, you know, a, a continued theme as well that, um, that, you know, when you go to people who haven't dug into the kind of literature that you guys have and you don't they don't have the spiritual understanding it's okay to speak to them much more simply you don't have to just throw them into the deep end of the pool and watch them struggle and get a leg cramp and climb out and going i'm never going in there again you know you don't need to do that you just you, you know baby steps he taught them the mysteries concerning the wheel of the year that would be the zodiac i think and divided the year into a summer half and a winter half uh the the summer and uh, winter solstice with a great year cycle of 52 years, which is kind of interesting because, I mean, it's close to a jubilee. I wonder why they get 52 years there. 104 of which was the circle of the destroyer. That's fascinating because we're talking about the reset events and how the destroyer, El Shaddai. El Shaddai is the destroyer, I believe. He gave them the laws of weal and woe and established the folk feast of harvest tide and seeding tide. He taught them the ritual of Ulysses do. Now, again, he's coming across like an Enoch character here, you know, uh, but Her uh, uh, ha um, Haberus. But Haberus instructed Herthew in the ways of the other world. He taught him, so he's his, you know, personal disciple, right? He's not teaching humanity this, but he's speaking to this to his uh, Talmud. He taught him concerning the three rays from the central invisible sun, which manifest all things, upholding them in stability of form. Also concerning the oversoul, which filled everything in creation, as the soul self filled the mortal body. The soul self, he declared, would develop from mortal sensitivity and feeling transmuted into divine sensitivity and feeling through suppression of the baser instincts within mortals. Um, so, yeah, so the... Is the, the idea is we suppress, you know, the wide road of existence, um, you know, baser instincts, right? The instincts of the yoslings. Um, as, as we, and, you know, take that narrow path, discipline ourselves, we will be more uh, attuned. This is transmuted almost like a, uh, like a, like a gnosis almost, you know, a, a metamorphosis, you know, from a caterpillar into a butterfly almost. And we start, you know, 
I, I would say even the circumcised heart, but yeah, divine sensitivity and feeling like the, the coming closer to the divine. It was strengthened by development of feelings of love between man and woman and between these and their kindred by the appreciation of beauty and devotion to duty. By the development of all qualities that pertain to humans and not to animals. Again, I, I said that earlier tonight. This is what they say. It separates us from the animals, right? Religion. That's the, you know, we can say consciousness, uh, conscious of existence, but I don't know if that's even true. I really don't. I can't say that animals aren't conscious of their existence. I can't. Herthu uh, learned that the soul self is quickened by soul substances overflowing from the divine, that the strong soul is transformed and molded to the soul's desire. But the weak soul is not its own master. It is flabby, unstable, and is pulled into a state of distortion by its own vices. In the afterlife, there is unbounded joy for the entry of a noble soul. It will glow with splendor and stand out proudly. The mean soul of the wicked is dull-hued, twisted and drab, and being drawn towards its own compatible state, it shrinks into the dark places. I, I feel like C.S. Lewis read this. I really do, because like I feel like he just ripped this paragraph out, and that's the great divorce right there, because he just described C.S. Lewis's idea of hell, uh, that it's locked from within, and that people are gravitated there and they keep pushing they're just become like you know that they describe her dull hue twisted and drab you know and and they keep pushing themselves further and further and further out from other people and just living in the darkness by their own desires kind of interesting when herthew had barely crossed the threshold of manhood black bearded spearmen began to ravish the borders of Crocassus. So this is where I'm kind of seeing again Arthur in this. You know, he's trying to protect the land from these foreign invaders. And Edelvar, king of that country, called his fighting men together. And when word came to Herthew, he prepared to depart. But Heberus bid him stay a while, for he was unprepared for battle. Then Heberus prepared a strange fire with stones, unlike any fire seen before. And when it burnt low, he plucked out that which is called Child of the Green Flame. I, I looked at that, guys dozens of times and if somebody has knowledge of the child of the green flame do let me know and he beat it out so it became a blade so here we have an excalibur like blade right a very very special sword that you know remember merlin got from the lady of the lake and he gave to arthur this he fitted to a horned hand grip and when it was edged and bloodied blooded gave to herthew saying behold Dislana the biter, uh, bitter biter. So the name of the sword is not Excalibur. It's Dislana the bitter biter. Faithful servant of he who strikes hard and true. Then he made a shield of wicker covered with ox hide and a cap of hide, which came down over the face and neck. So equipped, Herthew went to the encampment of Edovar, taking eight fighting men with him. In those days, men fought with hand-thrown spears and clubs, with flung stones and sticks sharpened by fire and weighted, but they did not close in the battle clash. So when Itovar saw the battle blade of Herthew, he wondered and it passed his understanding. So I think that they're saying that this was the first ever sword, right? So this is kind of like a, uh, almost like a Lamech character here in a way. I mean, maybe he was brandishing the swords. Um, I don't know. And, but we saw that... Um, According to Enoch, the, the sword, it was a mystery of heaven. We know that the 
angels guarded Eden with it, and yet it was Azazel that taught men uh, the use of the sword. So, you know, take this for what it's worth, right? Um, you know, we make comparisons, and I don't know. But when he saw Herthu close on the battle line and the foemen fall before him, he was amazed. No man about the king could understand the making of such weapons, offspring of fire and stone, but Heberus made others, and Herthu became the king's right-hand man and the first hero of the noble race. The king offered Herthu his daughter's hand in marriage, but Herthu declined, saying, The days of my manhood are not yet fulfilled. When the war-filled days had passed, Herthu withdrew to the place where Heberus made the bright battle blade, and already he had taught the mysteries of their making to others, sealing their mouths with magic. But Herthu was less concerned with the weaponry of war than with the mysteries of life and the battles of the spirit beset by mortality. So while his workmen drew bright blades from the thunderstones, Heberus taught Herthu and his battle brothers, and these were the things they learned from his mouth. Beyond Alahayam, there is an absolute, which no man should try to understand, for it exists and has always existed in a state beyond man's finite comprehension. It is from this absolute that Alahayam, the ultimate in all perfections, was engendered. To create, Alahayam first visualized and thought, then he produced an outflowing wave of power, you could say like energy, which in a manner of speaking solidified what might be called building stones. The outflowing power also produced the celestial hymn. So I talked about the music, right? And how the material realm uh, came through the energy solidifying, which this uh, celestial hymn, which brought the building stones together in harmonious forms. So it is truly said that all creation is the harp of Allah Hayam, and it responds to his song and manipulations. It is an everlasting unfoldment. The voice of Alahayam can also be heard in the voice of his beautiful daughter who endows all growing things with life and beauty. Well, there, <laughs> there's a reference uh, to the daughter of Alahayam. I was commenting on that earlier tonight in my Torah portions. I totally didn't see that line in here when I put this earlier. That just now happened. Uh, wow. Okay. So, um, yeah. So there is a divine purpose in creation, which may be known only to the few. This knowledge is the key to all unanswered questions. Acquiring it is like the drawing back of heavy curtains, which have kept a room in gloomy half-light, so all things suddenly become clear and distinct. He who gains this knowledge knows the grand secret, the answer to the riddle of the ages, and knows beyond a shadow of doubt this divine purpose, and the divine secret concerning it is called when Kilva. I don't see how much further this goes. Man, this keeps going. Okay. Um, let's see here. See, I get lost when I do this. Apart from Gwen Kelva, Alahayam gains nothing from his creation. So some of these words, like, like Gwen Kelva, like it's, it's like not being, it's almost like maybe there's not a word for it or a word that they recognize. So it's, I feel like they're not translating. It. Um, so we don't exactly know what that is. Alahayam gains nothing from his creation except that as a being possessing infinite love and goodness, he must have something to receive the gift of love and respond to it. Even among mortal beings, who is there, who is there that could find satisfactory fulfillment in self-love? Also, he needed something wherewith he could contrast himself, some medium where he could perform, and this is creation. 
Creation is also, so, I mean, if you want, ever wanted to know, according to the Colbrin, the book of creation, and this will connect with the book of wisdom and others, why Allah Hayam created the world, there it is right there. He needed something wherewith he could contrast himself. And also there is no satisfaction in self-love, right? He created, you know, for, for Elohim, for God to love the world, right? John 3, 16, uh, that he gave his only begotten son. Um, and he, he, he loves, so, you know, he didn't want to self-love. He wanted to love humanity. Creation is also for, mo for mortals, the school of life, the training ground for, for God, for being divine, for being a son of Allah Hayam. There are three circles of reality, three realms, three stages of existence. They are heaven, where perfection visualized on earth may be realized and desires and ideals materialize so we can realize we can con the concepts concepts of heaven but they don't exist on the earth perfectly right we're hard um we're hard striven for where hard stri uh, striving for aspirations are attained it is the place where all the properly developed spiritual potential latent in man reaches maturity and fulfillment and that's of course in heaven earth is the second one the place of training development and preparation for the testing ground the battlefield where men discover their true natures when confronted by life challenges, contests, and contentions, where competition and controversy are the rule. It is here that aims and objectives are conceived and thought out for a realization later in the proper place. It is a starting point, the beginning of the journey. It is here that the proper road must be wisely chosen. Then there is the realm of the misty horizon. Right, the spiritual beyond, beyond the curtain, spiritual realm, the intermediate place, the place of decision, the place of spirits, where those above can commune with those below, and where free spirits wander within their limitations. So, and I love that line there, where free spirits, free Rulikov, wander within their limitations. All spirits have limitations. The the, the spirits can't communicate with us in this realm. In uh, in I'm not talking about like you know, um, you know, all holding hands in some dark room with a crystal ball, you know, like a seance. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about calling upon the dead or things like that. But th they communicate with us in many ways, and you know, they're, they're in the weather, right? They're, the weather report. They're they're in the water. They're in you know the 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 clouds. The sky. They're everywhere. They they're the caretakers of this realm. And so I think that they communicate with us more ways than we realize. Um. And, you know, but they have limitations. We have limitations in how we can see them, and they have limitations in how they can perceive us. These things which Haberis taught in those far-off days have been rewritten in transmission to accord with our understanding. But it is unwise to voice them in these troublesome days when words become snares to entrap the unwary. Now, Idelvar, so this is the king, desired to learn the secrets of the bright blade, this Excalibur weapon, which engendering, uh, engendering thunderstones, but no man who came with Heberus or labored for him would disclose any part of it, and the king was afraid to put them to the test. So having thought the matter out, the king sent for his daughters and told them what he expected them to do, for he had devised a plan to learn the secret. Then he sent an invitation to Herthew and Heberus, when they arrived at the king's encampment, they found a great gathering in their honor, and the king's daughters favorably inclined towards them, one smiling upon her few and the other upon Heberus, who was at the age of hoary hiddenness. Does anyone know what the age of hoary hiddenness is? I guess I should have looked that up. 
I mean, I can come up with some guesses, but I'll let you guys uh, figure that one out. Though at first, Haberis was indifferent and wearied her, the king's daughter pandered to him, encouraging even his follies, setting out to charm him with her wit and beauty. So the king's daughter is not crazy about him, uh, but she's trying to seduce him by her father's uh, uh, request, and he's not really paying attention to her. It was no great length of time before her womanly wiles ensnared the heart of Haberis, and though he was almost ripe for the surrender of secrets, um, so, right, spelling secrets in bed, right? Uh, though I don't think they got to that point yet. The damsel's efforts had taxed her, so she's tired. Of it. She's like, I'm working hard at this guy, and he's, he's not, you know, he's not spilling the beans. And the game became tiresome, so there came an evening when she could not endure his company any longer. Remember, this is like the, the Merlin character. In the midst of the merrymaking, when the ale bowels or ill bow, yeah, ill um, bowls, not bowels, ale bowls, um, had made many rounds. I'm guessing this is like beer, and the sound of song and story was at its height. Sounds fun. She slipped away with a young battleman hmm, who attended upon her father. Many who sat among the benches saw this and whispered to one another. They're like you know gossip, right? Look who she she went off with nodding knowingly in the direction of Haberis, who was not who was not unaware though he appeared to have drunk to his capacity so he's like so intoxicated um he's not really picking up on what's going on Haberis had learned to love the young woman so he was sorely heart smitten but within himself he knew the tree of winter love bears only winter's fruits yet he made excuses to himself for her thinking perhaps it was just some girlishness with no more weight than a floating feather, nothing of serious import. For it was true the merrymaking was better suited to the natures of men than the natures of women. Maybe, he thought, it, it is just an innocent indiscretion. So when the day came to its fullness and those who had made merry went heavily about their task, Haberis approached the king and asked for his daughter's hand in marriage. And he said, Your daughter Clara has delighted me with her winsome ways, she has charmed me with her gaiety and beauty. She has displayed much pleasure in my company. Surely I have not misread the signs. The king was not overpleased. So he's like, he's not thrilled to hear that he wants his daughter, even though he was using his daughter to try to get secrets, right? But he didn't really want to hand his daughter over her. And it says that right here, for though he greatly desired to know the secret of the bright, the bright blade, he had not intended giving his daughter's hand to Hebaris. So he was willing to give his daughter to sleep with him, but uh, not in marriage. But neither did he wish to offend him. Therefore, he was wary in his reply, saying, It is the custom for any suitor for a highborn woman's hand to be him, self-highborn and worthily battle-blooded. So he's saying, like, you're not highborn. You know, you're not, like, in league with my daughter. Yet such is my affection for you that I would not let even the custom become a bar to this marriage. And you may be a battle-blooded man among your own people. But let us not enter lightly into this thing. For the girl is still young, and it would be well if you establish yourself favorably with her. She will be a worthy wife indeed, for she is one who is ever ready to learn, one with an inquiring mind. Nothing gives her greater pleasure than the acquisition of knowledge. So the matter was left. Now, some days later, Edovar and his retinue, accompanied by Herthew and Heberis, went to the gathering place for a folk feast some five days' journey away. People were accustomed to meeting here every 13 moons to celebrate the season of fruitfulness. I have, I, I, 
I wonder why it's every 13 moons. I understand once in a while 13 moons, but why is it that to celebrate the season of fruitfulness, you know, comes every 13 moons? Many coming a great distance. Beside the gathering place was the compound of a far-framed seer and warlock, warlock called Widon, who in the fullness of the moon on the third night would prophesy events for the coming year. Itovar and those with them presented their gifts and took their places before the compound. Presently, Gwydon came out cloaked in the skins of wild dogs with a thorn crown and skull-headed stallion. He seated himself before a small fire into which he threw prescriptions, making a cloud of smoke, which completely enveloped him. When this uh, reminds me, um, I don't know if he's watching, um, one of the uh, individuals writing uh, for TUC for the Unexpected Cosmology, Sean Walkingberry talks about his days as a shaman uh, with the Creed tribe. Kind of reminds me of this right here. A little bit. Not too much, Sean, but a little bit. When this had drifted away, he seemed to be asleep, but after a while, he lifted his head. Then raising himself up, he started to prophesy. He talked a while of small matters and told of dangers to the people through enemies who would bear down from the Northlands. He prophesied a great bloodletting, telling people they would be saved by a great war leader, a king knowing the secret of the bright blade, himself a war, war wielder of one. So again, like an Arthurian tone here, he's predicting the coming king, Excalibur, right? This is the very Perthew uh, uh, who they're rejecting, I think. He exhorted the people to bestir themselves and prepare, wasting no time in finding their leader. No man among the people knew the mysteries of the Bright Blade except Tiberius, but he was not a man of battle, and Herthu was not highborn among them. So, though they talked long, they talked in tangles, failing to resolve the issue. It was then decided each should go to his own way, but they should meet at the same place again at the next full moon, so they don't have to wait 13 more months, they just come back one month later, when Widen would, uh, would be able to help with their decision. When Edelvar returned to his encampment, he was no longer hesitant about the marriage of his daughter, ordering that should it take place forthwith. But he stipulated that Heberus must initiate him and his sons into the mysteries of the Bright Blade immediately. This being agreed, arrangements for the marriage were put in hand. Heberus and Clara were married, and Edelvar and his sons partially initiated into the mysteries of the Bright Blade, for the king was told it would take some time for the initiation to be completed. So when they next went to the meeting place, Edelvar was proclaimed the war leader with his sons to follow according to their ages, should he fall in battle. But Heberus had, so Edelvar is setting it up so this prophecy is like directed towards him. But Heberus had spoken to Gwydon in secret, and matters were so arranged that should the sons of Edelvar fall, then Herthi would become the battle chief. So so even so, now we see Haberis and Gwydon, this this magician, are in on this together, and he was prophesying to set up Herthew, though the king Edelvar think it thinks it's for him. The king and those with him returned to their home compound where they were to prepare battlemen, but Herthew was to go back to the gathering place and their trained fighting men in the battle tactics, which brought them clashing into the foe. Now on their wedding night, when they had retired to their bower. Clara burst into tears and fell weeping with her head on the knees of Heberus, confessing she was not a virgin and had deceived him, begging his forgiveness. Now, of course, like, you know, this was a big deal back then, right? I mean, this, this could bring the death penalty on the woman. Uh, according to the, uh, the laws, I think, of Egypt, uh, according to Mesopotamia, 
according to uh you know just a lot of ancient religions Abaris raised her up and said even the wisest of men become a, becomes a fool when his heart blinds him to reason the older the fool the bigger the fool so he's an old man i guess that's the age of hoary headed hoary headedness he's an old man he's like really old he he's married a very he's marrying a very young woman and he's saying i'm an old fool and therefore the bigger the fool he did not question her regarding love for he knew she could not love and deceive him she had given her heart and with it her virginity to another um yet he made an excuse for her to himself thinking that she had not willfully deceived him but had acted out of duty to her father so that's when he was i guess drunk his full he kind of saw what happened but he made excuses and he's like yeah she's doing he, she's doing that because her father wants her to he, he he wasn't thinking that she did it by her own accord because that's what you know she was just bored of him also truly loving someone and wishing to demonstrate that love she necessarily had to sacrifice the happiness and content the self-respect of her husband to be the choice had been hers to make it is ever so hebaris asked if her father had known how things were and she said he suspected for am i not his daughter thus hebaris found himself tied to an unloving wife for he chose to disregard the custom of the people he wondered was she also to be an undutiful and unfaithful one so the idea is is that he knew he didn't have her heart uh and um and you know what she did with that other battleman would she continue doing that when she saw the young strapping lads come along because she's married to this uh man and his hoary headedness a, a woman reserves herself for her husband or she does not according to her marriage criterion a woman reserved for marriage is one unlikely to be unfaithful a woman easily come by before marriage is no less attainable afterwards for if she says love is a criterion then she measures by something unstand uh, uh she let me try that let me say that again it's getting late for if she says love is a criterion then she measures by something unstandard uh, standardized which may figuratively vary from one inch to a mile a man declaring his love may have seduction in mind or a lifetime of protection devotion i'm sorry let me man i'm struggling tonight guys a man declaring his love may have seduction in mind right he he might be saying i love you to a woman just because he wants to seduce her and lay with her or a lifetime of protective devotion the marriage proposal determines the difference and establishes the intent so if he says if a man comes to a woman and says i love you now sleep with me Right, he's trying to seduce her. He said, "I love you. I want to express this love for you." Um, you know, that doesn't mean he has. He wants to protect you, right? He doesn't have a devotion to you. But the marriage proposal, like if he wants to make you an honorable woman, uh, will establish his intent. After the marriage, the king showed little concern for Hebaris. For he kept clear as young battleman in his retinue when he should have dispatched him elsewhere so yeah the woman the man that clara loved was still hanging around and the king knew it too nor did clara maintain the restraint and decorum which dignifies wifehood except in their outward manifestations which is no more than a deceptive crust disguising the polluted love beneath Thus, Hebaris bore the shame of belittlement in the eyes of men, for Clara was furtively unfaithful. 
Heberus visited Herthuin on his return, told the king that he and his sons would now receive their final initiation. So having made preparation, they set off, accompanied by Clara, to the place of the Thunderstones, uh, the place where he made the sword. This being a deep, deeply cleft mountain wherein there was a large cavern from which flowed a river. Entering the cave, Heberus told those with him to bide where they were, for only the king, his sons, and Clara were to accompany him into the place of initiation. A small cave entered through a long, narrow passage closed off by a heavy door and lit by a fire already prepared, a fire which burnt tardily with a blue flame. When a length of time had passed, those who waited without grew uneasy. But it was long before they approached the door, and when they did, their throats were seized. So they were affrighted and fled, and one among them died. Then those who knew the mysteries of the thunderstones uh, came and cleared the way, and all within the cave were found dead. Abaris did what had to be done. For though it is well for men to conform to the laws of men, there is a super law by which men who are men should live, and which sometimes decrees that they must die. You know, this whole scene reminds me of um, the uh, the sons of uh, Yaakov, uh, particularly Judah and Levi and, uh, and uh, Simon, uh, when their daughter Dinah was uh, taken by Shechem and they you know wanted honor and they went in and they circumcised the town Shechem and then went in and killed them all. It kind of reminds me of that right there. And this would be the end of tonight. Uh, Herthu married the daughter of Itovar, and they had a son who died in his seventh year. Uh, so that's interesting. Now, Herthu marries um, one of the king's daughters now, too. Uh, Itovar's daughters died in childbirth. The invaders came and were defeated with a great slaughtering, and Herthu became the first king over all the people of Crocalsis. So this is going to develop more of Herthu in the next one, but we see that he has now... The prophecy has come true. Uh, it looks like it looks to me like Itovar, the king, and his sons are all dead. They died in the cave. Um, they, you know, uh, I think that he felt deceived. Haberis felt deceived by them, and I guess you live by the sword, you die by the sword. I guess maybe is one way you could put it. Anyways, uh, whether it's just or not, that can be debated. I'm just reading what it says. He went in and had them all killed in the cave, and now uh, the. We see Herthew, he is rising up as the king with the sword. I'm going to end there tonight. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Yeah, it was a very different read. Um, you know, the book of creation, like I said, it's taking this kind of sudden turn in a very different direction. And sometimes they do that. It's kind of fun. Um, anyways, uh, that's going to be it tonight. So uh, for everyone still here with me, Shabbat Shalom one last time. And uh, we'll do this again next week.